Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. We've got Rob Fotheringham on with us today. He's the founding partner of Vile Fotheringham LLP. Today, we're going to talk about trusts, how we use them, the different types of trusts, and the pros and cons of having trusts. He also shares with us how trusts are used as a tax reduction vehicle and the importance of trust planning for the future. So without further ado, welcome Rob Fotheringham. All right. Today, we've got Rob Fotheringham with us. He is founding partner of Vile Fotheringham LLP and an expert on trusts. So, Rob, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, sure. The first thing I have to say is I can't call myself an expert in the law in anything or else they they take away my ticket. So I can be <laughs> very well experienced. I can be any number of things, but apparently expert is a word that can't be used. But in any event, for 35 years as a lawyer, I've been doing estate planning largely. So trusts are certainly a central part of that activity, as well as lots of transactions that people that I do estate planning for get into, which include real estate in a big way and any other sort of business-related transactions. So estate planning is sort of a gateway practice into everybody's business and their activities on a small scale. I don't represent big banks or insurance companies or large corporate enterprises. It's mostly small mom-and-pop businesses and families and it's a, very, it's a very pleasant law practice, actually. I was reading this last week about all the lawyers who during COVID are going to leave practice because they're so stressed out working from home and into substance abuse and all the things that happen because of all the stresses with law. But estate planning tends to be the one area in law where everybody comes out happy. I mean, the client's been waiting to do it forever. You love doing it for them. They think you've sort of saved them from something, not death, but taxes maybe or something else. So it's a very upbeat, cordial practice. So I really love it for that reason. I started off in Las Vegas for four years. That was my first area. I I graduated from the Utah, BYU-Utah campus of the law school, but then went to Las Vegas for my first practice, which was a sort of a tax and estate planning practice boutique firm there. And then raised all my kids up here in Oregon. So we came up here to raise our five kids. And now we're up to 10 grandkids and two on the way. So it's been a lot of years and a lot of good times. And largely, the law firm I work with, Vile Fotheringham, is largely a homeowner association law firm. We have about 100 people in four different state offices, most of who deal with HOAs. And as Chris mentioned, collecting HOA assessments. And so we're the enemies of the people in some respect. But I stay sort of in my little corner niche keeping people happy with estate planning and basic business kind of work. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, in estate planning, I understand that like a trust is used very commonly. And I don't know if all of our listeners maybe know exactly what a trust is or, or how it works. I mean, would you mind starting off and kind of going into that? Sure. Sure. Just as a sort of historical background, since I'm not just giving legal advice, I'm just going to talk about a whole concept it's interesting to know where trust came from. 
why did they get created? Where did they come in the legal history of time? All of our legal system in the United States is largely adopted from England, the common law, it's called. So back in the 12th century, apparently, all the lords and lassies, or the lords in England, all decided to go on the Crusades. So they left their lands. I mean, they had tons of land there in Great Britain and that area, and they had to leave their lands in the care of their servants, head off to the Crusades, and then when they got back, English law did not allow them to get their land back. Their servants kept the property, quote, because once it's transferred, even for caretaking purposes, under English law at the time it was very strictly construed, the servant who had title to the property owned it. So these lords had all come back from the Crusades thinking they were going to get their property back, and all of a sudden their, their servants were telling them, well, you can stay for the night, but get off, <laughs> get out. <laughs> and so, of course, they appealed to the king who sent them on the Crusades in the first place, and the king had to figure out, well, gee, we got to figure out a different rule here. And so they really adopted a whole new legal system called the equity system, meaning laws of fairness, not just laws of the written law, but fairness-related legal system. It's called the law of equity. And so from that sort of legal analysis, they could now say, okay, the land was given to the servant in trust for a period of time due to the needs of the, the landlord to, or the owner to leave. But now that he's back, they simply held it for his benefit. Now he needs to transfer it back. So that whole idea of holding property as a trustee for the benefit of someone else was all because the crusaders came back and we're going to get screwed. <laughs> but I always wondered about those first <laughs> trustees who held the land in trust for their crusading owners that if they ever got paid trustee fees or if they just got their heads cut off because they wouldn't give the property back. <laughs> so in any event, so interesting. yeah, that whole concept evolved into you can have property held by someone, a trustee for the benefit of someone else. And largely that evolved into things like an owner of property wanted to leave the property to their children after they died, but they didn't trust the kids because they were hanging out with bad folks. They were incapable of managing the property themselves. So they put it into a trust for the benefit of the child and they couldn't blow it. They couldn't spend it. They couldn't dissipate it. And so that idea of trust has been around for a long time that it's one way to protect assets from the bad behavior of the beneficiary, but yet still support them for the rest of their life or whatever period of time it takes. But of course, it's evolved into a lot more useful document than that for people in estate planning today. The main use of it is now, it's a way for people to hold their own assets for themselves. Essentially, you can set up a trust that says this, I own the property, I want to put it into a trust and I'm the trustee, and it's for my benefit. So it's literally like taking everything out of your pocket and putting it in your other pocket and calling it your trust pocket. But because of doing that, it avoids a lot of disadvantages that owning property in your own name can create. The most primary one being you die. So if you die owning property and it's in your name alone, you have to go through a probate proceeding, a court proceeding after you die that takes, you know, months to years to go through a court mandated distribution process because a dead person owns land and now we can't get their name off of the deed to the property until we go through a probate proceeding. So that problem made people think, well, gosh, could we use a trust somehow to avoid that outcome so we don't have to have a court proceeding after death? And the answer is yes, because when you own property in a trust, it's not owned by the person who dies, it's owned by a trust they create 
and that trust has the ability to go on after their death. It says, after I die, I want this trust to distribute the property to my kids. And so it stays out of the courts, and basically whoever you appoint as the successor trustee of your trust can distribute the property to your family in in whatever way you want to. So it avoids the need to go to court after death and sort of makes it convenient to transfer assets without having that be a problem. There's other issues that also helps, but death is the primary one. It's often called probate avoidance trust is what we call it sometimes. Probate (laughs) avoidance trust. So, and that all evolved from the Crusades. Yes, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, what an amazing tool to... Well, and it's just morphed into so many different yeah. like facets. I guess one really quick question I have is, you know, when you're holding title to a property, you have the tax ramifications of holding title and how that's reported on your tax return. And then as well, just like the legal aspects of holding title. Right. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> AJ and I do this relatively often is we'll refinance a property. And so we'll take it out of an LLC, put it in our personal names, refinance it, and then deed it back. But if something happened to us during that time period, we would go through probate as opposed, even if the property was in the LLC, which is kind of like a trust, it has all of that figured out inside of it. Yeah, an LLC, an LLC is another form of ownership, right? So you can own things personally, you can own things in trust, you can own things in an LLC, in a corporation if you want to, but that's bad for real estate. So you, you know, that's not the right way to own real estate is in corporations, but LLCs and trusts are the most common ways to own property other than in your personal name. So an LLC is all geared toward liability protection, right? You're trying to avoid the liabilities of that property coming through into your personal life. So you own the LLC as the member. You're the member of your LLC, but you own it personally, right? So like you said, if you refinance, you take it out of the LLC, put it in your personal name, and then put it back in the LLC. Well, we can substitute the personal for the trust. So your living trust can own your LLC. It's the member of the LLC, just like you would be. So instead of refinancing, transferring it back to your name, you can transfer property out of the LLC back to the trust name and you can refinance in the trust. Now, some lenders have a hard time with that too. They want to <laughs> lend only to breathing people who somehow pay the money back. But now and now more than ever, people own property and trusts a lot more as well as LLCs. So people are financing in the LLCs and in trusts more frequently than they used to and not, are not requiring that you always put it back in your personal name. But yeah, if you died during that process, you'd have a probate proceeding because it's owned personally. Interesting. So when you go through kind of the estate planning process, mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned that trusts are super important because of death. Are there other, I guess, problems that you're trying to solve through that estate planning process? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other ones is, you know, death is only one thing that can happen to you that can cause a problem. Lots of times incapacitation is also an issue. Somebody becomes incapacitated because of health or Alzheimer's or whatever might happen. And if property is held in trust, 
you've appointed someone to take over control of the trust in the event you're incapacitated. So that can happen really overnight. You've got somebody, your family member or a professional trustee can take over as the trustee and keep managing your property for your benefit while you're hospitalized or in a care facility. So we're not dealing with courts in, in that situation either. So as a practical matter, trusts deal with both death as well as incapacity. And more and more now, trusts are also a tax planning vehicle. Because here in Oregon, whether we like it or not, death is another form of taxation. We have a death tax here in Oregon. And because of the death tax in Oregon, estate planning does all it can to gear that tax to be as low as possible. So a person in Oregon can transfer up to a million dollars worth of assets, whatever they are, real estate, bank accounts, investment accounts, life insurance, whatever it is. But once you cross the million dollar value mark, then Oregon wants a piece of you. They want roughly 10% of everything over a million. So a million is called your estate tax exemption, the amount you can pass tax-free. Well, if you're an individual, you can't do much to reduce that tax. There's a few things you can do. But if you're married, then both spouses have the right to pass up to a million each. They each have a million-dollar exemption. The problem is most spouses in their estate plan lose one of those million-dollar exemptions because their documents don't preserve it. I'll give you a simple example. The typical I love you estate plan. It says, if I die first, my wife gets everything. She gets all the assets. And then when she dies, she leaves it to our five kids. Well, that's a normal estate plan, right? Well, what Mm -hmm. it does is it says, but wait a minute. Then when my wife gets it from me, do I avoid any tax? Well, yeah, because anything between spouses is tax-free no matter how big it is. That's totally exempt. So a husband could give a wife $50 billion in Oregon and pay no death tax because spouses are considered to be the same unit for tax purposes. It's when she leaves it to the kids that the tax hits. But wait a minute, I want to make sure she can give at least $2 million when she gives it to the kids, my million-dollar exemption and hers. But your documents don't say that. They just say when my wife dies, she leaves it all to the kids. Only $1 million of the assets can be protected from the tax. If you do appropriate planning, which trusts are usually used for in Oregon, you can avoid tax on $2 million. Even if I die first and leave it to her, there's a way that the trust is designed to preserve my $1 million exemption, even though she's the one who's using all of the assets. And then when she dies, we're passing at least $2 million to the kids tax-free. So again, trusts are a tax planning and tax reduction vehicle if you need them for that too. And you can have multiple trusts, right? You can for different reasons, but you can't create, for example, three different trusts and somehow get three $1 million exemptions from them, you know, (laughs) because the government's not that dumb. They're saying now any assets that you control while you're alive that are in your name or even controlled by you, they're going to be part of your exemption. They're part of your $1 million counted. So you can't divide up into separate trusts and somehow say, those are all mine, but they're separately exempt. Unless you create different types of trusts. For example, you can actually create a trust called an irrevocable trust. That means I'm going to put some property into a trust that I don't control after I put the property in there. I name my brother as the trustee of the trust, And all of the property is for the benefit of my children when they go to college. So I put the property in now. My kids are young. My brother manages this property until my kids are in college and starts distributing money to them. 
Well, because I put it into the trust and I no longer control it, I'm not the trustee, it's not for my benefit, that's considered to be a gift of property into a trust for the benefit of someone else. That means when I die, nothing in that trust is part of my estate. None of that is part of my assets. I've already given it away. And in Oregon, there are no taxes for giving. There's no such thing as a gift tax in Oregon. (laughs) You give it away, it's gone. The federal government has some gifting issues and how much you can gift without having some tax issues. But right now, most people don't even think about the federal gift tax because it's based on a couple, a husband and wife, can give away up to $23.5 million before they hit the gift tax. So mm. that's, in, that's right now moving around with the Biden administration as to how much you can and what's going to happen in the future. But right now, federal estate tax and gift tax are sort of irrelevant for people under $23.5 million. It's people in Oregon that worry yeah. about the $1 million exemption that they're trying to plan for. And I'm just kind of curious, and this may be getting into the weeds a little bit, mm-hmm. but if you were to gift a property that has a loan on it, yep. I mean, say it's a $500,000 property and has a $400,000 loan yeah. on it, would that be considered a $100,000 gift or a $500,000 gift? Well, you can do a number of ways of gifting property. For example, let's say the property is worth a half million and you decide to yep. sell it to your kid. You know, you say, okay, we're going to sell my half million dollar property to my kids for only 250 because we want to gift some of it and sell the rest. Well, you can do a gift sale. So 250 is, is sale, 250 is gift. You can mix and match with regard to transactions. However, when property has debt on it, you have to be concerned about when you transfer property that's debt encumbered, you might be triggering capital gain to the giver because technically the IRS says you're being forgiven of the debt when you transfer it to someone else, even though you're going to kill pay it. Let's say it's still a mortgage you intend to pay. But forgiveness of debt triggers capital gain in many situations. So you have to make sure with your tax guy, your professional, can we, can we gift this property based on the way it's currently status for tax basis purposes? Can we still gift it and avoid capital gain? But that's a problem with encumbered property, dead encumbered property. It's not a good thing to gift, generally. Very interesting. So here's an interesting question for you. My brother and I are buying a portfolio from an individual, and he has a foundation and has been gifting land to that foundation And I want to say that it's to avoid property taxes or to reduce property taxes. I don't fully understand it. So I guess I'm wondering if you kind of might be able to understand how he's navigating some tax liability through a foundation. Now, a foundation is not a trust, but it is a form of ownership, right? It's essentially a corporation. It's an entity Mm -hmm. formed by filing something with the state of Oregon and creating a foundation. But it's a charitable entity. And that's one of the great ways to avoid death tax, income tax, capital gains tax. There's all sorts of taxes that get avoided when you start engaging with charitable entities. And you don't just have to give your money to the United Way and say it's gone. Now I made a charitable contribution to the United Way, it's gone. Well, a foundation is a way to create your own charitable entity that gets all the benefits of charitable deductions, avoiding capital gains on sales, avoiding all sorts of taxation, death taxes as well, estate taxes, but you still control the property because it's in a foundation you control. However, 
you can't treat it like it's your back pocket and take money back out of it as if you're a charity personally, okay? So there are limitations and they're very strict. But lots of times when people know they're going to have to pay a huge amount of death tax at the end of their life, they say, wait a minute, I don't necessarily need to give all my property to my kids and generate tax. I'll give them enough. I'll give them some. But guys like the Gates family and Paul Allen, you know, they're not going to give their kids everything that they owned. They give them some, you know, a couple billion, you know, whatever. (laughs) But the rest goes into charitable entities that are called foundations or donor advised funds or lead charitable trusts because you can create charitable trusts also. But they're just ways to help reduce all the death and income taxes while still allowing you to be a charitable guy, to help people out, help the world out, have a lot of influence, and then take a really fat salary as the foundation president and get some of your money back. <laughs> uh, so that's how it works is you have a salary uh, yes. on the back end. There you go. Okay. And that's either you or your kids. Your kids are living off of your foundation because, you know, they, that's the only job they can get, right, is to be the president <laughs> of your foundation. And they, yes, you can't be unreasonable with salary, but, you know, gosh, look at charitable organizations today that have guys making a half million to a million bucks in salaries as they run these charitable operations. Well, what's unreasonable to one is not reasonable to another. (laughs) Is there any stipulations on like money exiting for any sort of charity in specific or like, or pretty much with foundations. Once you put property in the foundation, the only ones that can receive money from it have to be qualified charities as well. Charitable organizations or charitable activities, because when you put the property in the foundation, you get a big fat contribution deduction, a, a charitable deduction on your current income taxes. So, Once you put it in, it now is devoted to charitable purposes once it's in the foundation. Foundations are the most complicated, high-end, charitable gifting structures there are. There's a lot more simple ones. And a lot of clients that I do don't do foundations because they're so expensive and hard to run. But you can do something as simple as put your real estate, your building that you have that's got all this capital gain built up in it because you don't want to sell it and trigger all this capital gain because you've owned it forever. So you transfer this building to what's called a charitable trust, a charitable remainder trust, CRT, if you've heard of that before. And what it says is, I'm going to contribute this property to the trust, then sell it. And when you sell it, because it's in that trust, there's no capital gain. The 100% of the money goes into that trust and you're the trustee of that trust. And you're also a beneficiary of that trust. So it's like, whoa, (laughs) how does this work? Well, What it is, it limits how much you can take out as the beneficiary. It's basically a lifetime annuity payment. And you can pay yourself based on, let's say, 6% of the value of the property I put in will come out to me every year for the rest of my life. That's the annuity that this will pay me. Well, that's pretty cool if you want to have money come back to you and you don't want to have to pay the income tax or the capital gains tax on what happened when the property sold. So it's a way to have a property sold, no capital gain, property income still comes back, or excuse me, the invested money after the sale of the property comes back to you until you die. And then whatever's left in the trust after you die goes to charity. (laughs) So the charity has to wait until you're dead and have sucked away as much of the, you know, the value of that as you could based on your life expectancy and they get what's left over. Sometimes they end up with nothing (laughs) because you've lived long enough and your life expectancy (laughs) was such that you took it all back. So that doesn't happen all the time, but it is one of the benefits of charitable planning is you can do a lot with charitable organizations that the charities really don't get a lot until the end of the day. 
end of your life sometimes. Wow. No money really needs to go out to the charity until you, you Death. The, your life is, is meaning you and a spouse, okay. usually you and your spouse can both be the annuitants. It's called receiving back the distribution until you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's been a lot of abuse of that. that. So we got to be careful when you do it, you do it the right way and the right rules are obeyed. But some people, for example, created this annuity trust that called it and they took back a 50% annuity in year one, <laughs> meaning Uh-oh. they took half of the money back out of the trust in year one and the other half in year two. Well, don't have to live very long to get 100% of the money back. Well, that's been shut down. I mean, the IRS has rules about how you calculate your life expectancy and how much money you can take back over your lifetime. So once you, if you keep those rules, then you can, you can do it. Are there strict rules regarding, you know, refinancing the property right before you sell it and then gifting it over and then only having a small amount of money in the trust? Again, you would not want to transfer into a charitable trust encumbered property, debt encumbered property typically. Because it's going to trigger gain. the there's loan. Be, yeah, there's going to be some capital gain issues usually. Again, I, I'm not an expert on taxes. Uh, clearly not yeah. an expert on taxes. So I have to be a little cautious about giving heavy tax advice. But most people, if they're dealing with charitable entities, are not giving property that has debt with it. It's typically always unencumbered property. Very interesting. So for younger individuals, you know, say under 50, what do you think that they can do when it comes to state estate planning to kind of get prepared mm-hmm. for as real estate investors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Again, lots of times, the first time people ever come to a lawyer like me, it's when they've had a child or they're getting married. Some event occurs and they go, you know, I got to do something to put on paper what I want to have happen. Because if you don't have some form of planning, even a basic will, the state of Oregon gets to decide for you. They have a will written for you called intestacy, meaning here's who's getting your stuff if you don't tell us in a document that we will respect, okay? So at least doing a will allows you to govern where your things are going to go after you're gone. So a will as a basic document is still useful. It's not like they're not useful because trust came around. Most of my younger clients, that's the first document they ever do is a will because it's less expensive for legal work. It's less difficult to prepare. And it basically, once it's signed and dated and witnessed, it sits in an envelope and doesn't do anything until someone dies. But the downside again is if that's the only estate planning you do until the end of your life, you're going to have a probate. There's going to be a probate proceeding because wills go through probate. They don't avoid probate. Wills tell a judge what you want done with your property. And so a probate still happens. So it's still a valid document. It's just one where people are thinking, I don't think I'm going to die anytime soon. So I might as well at least have a will in place. And maybe when I get a little bit richer, a little bit more sophisticated, I'll do a trust then because I've got other problems I have to deal with once I've you know, grown up, so to speak. I have three more kids. I have a larger estate. I want to make sure I avoid death taxes and I want to make sure my kids get my property in a certain way. Well, then trusts start getting involved. So usually with people, I do wills when they're young. They come back later and do trusts later in their later years. Now, the reason people do trusts for the first time, let's say they're 40 years old or 30 years, I don't care what their age is, Here in Oregon, if your estate exceeds a million dollars, remember that death tax exemption I was talking about? If you have death tax issues as a young person, you're still better off likely doing a trust than a will. Because again, we want to help you avoid death tax and wills are not as good as trusts for creating tax avoidance vehicles. So usually that's the the distinguishing characteristic. Interesting. 
One thing that AJ and I have also benefited, our dad has a trust. Yeah. And as a real estate investor, it's been extremely difficult to get loans. Yeah. So he has allowed us to take a little bit of income off of the trust because that can be immediately recognized for Fannie and Freddie loans. Mm -hmm. It is Mm -hmm. one of the, like being a self-employed business owner, it's so difficult to get a loan. And that was one of the things that has kind of helped us break through the self-employed glass ceiling. Right, right. Yeah, lending issues and lending policies are things that even as lawyers, we just adapt to. We don't get to control them or oversee them or defeat them. And so when people say, this is what we require, take it or leave it, you know, then we all bow and, you know, curtsy and do what we have to do. But ultimately... For example, with lending with a trust, when people have trust and a lender says, listen, we're not going to loan you money for your house, even refinance your house if it's in a trust. Okay, we take it back out of the trust, they do the refinancing and we deed it back in. And by federal law, lenders cannot object to having property put into a living trust for yourself. It's a federal rule that if you have a loan on the property, if it's your home, your personal residence, they cannot object to you transferring it into the trust with that loan on it because they tried in the past to trigger due on sale clauses and things like that. And they said, no, a living trust is just your other pocket. Basically, it's just you. You still owe the money. Nothing's changed in terms of obligation to pay. So don't use it as an excuse to trigger some sort of acceleration on the loan. That is great information. That's interesting. Are there any other types of trusts that could be beneficial to real estate investors? Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of we've talked about, you know, the basic trust is a trust I create for myself. That's called a revocable mm-hmm. living trust. And you, revocable, can yep. it. you can do whatever you want with it. It's your money. It's taxable to you. Nothing changes as far as how it's treated by the taxing authorities or by anybody else. It's also not a creditor protection. <laughs> I mean, if somebody comes after you because of a debt or you run over somebody's cat, they can still sue you and take everything out of your trust that you have. It's not a protection that way. But Other types of trust, like I mentioned before, if you want to put property into a trust for someone else's benefit, like your children, let's say, again, they're not responsible age yet. You want to still get property out of your estate to avoid death tax when you die. So you gift it into a trust for the kids. Well, now that property sits in there and it avoids creditors now. Your creditors can't go after it. You gave it away. Your kids' creditors can't come after it if they get into trouble because they don't own the property. It's the trust that owns it. So it's kind of like a little LLC almost in that respect. It's liability protected from the beneficiaries or from the person who set it up or even the trustee because the trustee doesn't own it. The trustee just manages it. So it's kind of, it's protected from all these potential risks of people who are involved in it. The downside with irrevocable trust is now you don't own the property yourself anymore. (laughs) Okay, it's gone. But if you really were going to give it to your kids at death, why not give it sooner? I mean, if that was a benefit to you to give it sooner, you're just still going to pay it for their college. Why don't you put it in there sooner? You're going to pay for college anyway. So it's just a way to sort of advance something into the future. The taxation of irrevocable trusts, however, is a little bit sensitive, okay? You gave it away, so you're not the owner anymore. How does it get taxed? Who gets taxed? Do your children get taxed when, it gets, when the interest comes in or the benefits come in from the rental or whatever property's in there? Well, the trust is its own taxpayer. It has its own tax ID number. It would file a tax return every year reporting the income. 
And here's a problem with owning real estate in an irrevocable trust. If that thing's kicking off a whole lot of income, you don't want to pay income tax at trust tax rates. They're higher. They're higher <laughs> tax rates. In fact, they, they immediately jump to the highest personal income tax rates there are. So it's because the government years ago suspected that people were hiding assets in irrevocable trusts. And it was the way they were going to hide the income and it wasn't going to be taxable to anybody. Well, the IRS said, great, you want to put money into or a, a real estate into a trust like that? Guess what? You're going to pay high income tax rates almost immediately because you're rich, obviously, if you put it into a trust. That's the conclusion, <laughs> right? Well, one way to avoid that income being taxed at income tax rates for a trust is to distribute the income at least annually to the kids. And now it's taxed at their income tax rate, not the trust tax rate. Interesting. But can you do that if your kids are little tiny kids, you know, distributing a bunch of cash to them and they have a tax return at age five? You know, it's complicated <laughs> if you're going to use real estate while your kids are really young. But if they're old enough to be starting to file tax returns and need income, then at least you're shifting the income tax burden from your tax return and the trust tax return to a child who's likely got very little income and lower income tax bracket. So it is a way to help reduce income taxation, but holding it inside the trust is usually the worst because the tax rate inside of a trust is the most pen almost penalty oriented <laughs> as opposed to normal tax rate. Would a trust like that get to use depreciation oh, yeah. to write off some of the It gets all the, the same gains, expenses. Just like a yeah. regular person. Yep. Expenses yeah. of legal fees, uh, accounting yeah. fees, depreciation, trustee fees. What about you know, the, the, the depreciation schedule? How Do you know how that would transfer over? Like, let's say that it's a property that's uh -huh. nearing the end of its depreciation yeah. schedule personally. Yeah. And then it gets gifted over to the irrevocable trust. Yes. All you're doing is gifting exactly your same status when you gift to an irrevocable trust. If you have tax deductions you've taken, they transfer over. If your tax basis is really low, you're transferring it over. You're not getting any uptick in the tax basis, meaning, oh, it's worth a lot more now when I gift it to the trust, now that it has a new tax basis. That doesn't work for irrevocable trust when you gift it. But here's the benefit of dying, you probably know that, you die, uh -huh. <laughs> then, then the prize wins, right? You get a step up in tax base. Okay, all right. But here's one of the things an irrevocable trust can do, just so you know. When you put property into a trust, there are ways that you can still treat that irrevocable trust as if it's taxable to you, the giver. It's called a grantor defective trust. What it means is I still want all the income tax to be paid by me even though the income stays in the trust for my kids. Well, that way your kids don't have to worry about income tax. The trust doesn't worry about income tax. You do. But you're saying, why would I want to do that? Because it's one way to keep transferring more value to the kids. If I mm -hmm. keep paying the income tax, they don't diminish the trust at all. Over the years, it just keeps growing and I pay the income tax. And that's not considered an, a gift to them. If I pay income tax, that's not gifting more money. It's just I'm obligated to pay the income tax on it. And then also when I die, the property gets a full step up in tax basis because oh, wow. I'm, I'm the grantor and I was responsible for the tax. Ooh, and if it's, if it's not grantor defective, then the basis would stay the same? That's correct. No step wow. up because you get that's to it before you die. <laughs> Interesting. So that granted defector trust, irrevocable trust, seems like a very powerful tool to 
It can be for transfer wealth through real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, You better just keep enough money in your piggy bank to pay those taxes. (laughs) Right. Or, or own a property management company and charge (laughs) enough. Serious money. That's right. That's right. Serious money. (laughs) So you mentioned the charitable remainder trust. That is kind of like a defined benefit that for a free and clear property kind mm-hmm. of until, you know, based on your life expectancy. Right, right. And are there any other ones out there? <laughs> well, there are some that people have seminars for in Las Vegas um, <laughs> or Utah. They seem to be the two states where creativity and tax avoidance are such a huge issue. But sometimes the more elaborate the presentation, the bigger risk that's involved there. I mean, they bring you down to a hotel and pay you for all your room and board and then show you this form of offshore trusts, meaning all you have to do is set up this trust in the Cayman Islands or in mm. some Bahrain or, Bahrain or something. And boy, we'll avoid taxes everywhere. You'll never have to pay a nickel to anybody. You can keep all the money and have all the benefits. And it's like, let a red flag go up because the reality is those kinds of trusts are considered abusive in large measure by the IRS. They're going to try and track you down. You're going to have to sleep with one eye open all the time. So part of the idea is I tell people you can be a pig when it comes to tax avoidance. Just don't be a hog, which is the idea of take your fair share, do as much avoidance as possible, be as aggressive as you can be, but don't be foolhardy and fraudulent and border on the edge of trying to avoid every possible tax and and creditor because usually you pay a higher price in the end because of the, the downside and legal fees and all the other things that come your way because you're trying to defend yourself. Or even your heirs will yeah. pay more. Yeah. That seems and that's like the whole reason. Yeah. Yeah. I like to keep people sort of inside the walls of what case law and what lots of court cases have sort of brought them to a position where they can say, yeah, that's a pretty safe approach to real estate ownership and how to have your family be involved with you in ownership of real estate and all that kind of stuff. But if you're, you're pushing the edge all the time, you're generally going to pay more lawyer fees than you'll pay taxes just to try to stay out of trouble. You know, that's a problem. All right, Rob. Well, I think we are getting to about time for our last four questions. All right. Appreciate you being on the show with us. So I'll, I'm going to start off with the first question. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25 year old self? (laughs) Well, I thought about that and thought, you know, the mistake, one of the big mistakes I made early on, and I graduated from law school about that time, about age 25, and started practicing. And that was, I made the mistake of, of having my identity be as a lawyer. I thought of myself as a lawyer, that that was my calling card for the world. And the problem with that is, life is about relationships with people, not the career you have. <laughs> so as a practical matter, if you start treating everybody like a lawyer, well, that ends up being your children, your wife, your friends. They start seeing you as a lawyer too because you kind of behave that way. And the idea is you lose a lot of your identity as a person, as a human being. When you start narrowing yourself into whatever your career path is, you may change careers. You may lose that job. You may become anything else in the future that you know, you're not even aware of. But if you maintain that sort of separate identity of I'm a, a friend, a brother, a husband, whatever it is, a father, and my career is just a resource to me, it's a lot safer path on the journey of life. I've found that now being 61 years old. Yeah. That's great advice. You know, just make sure that you, you are yourself yeah. and keep the relationships up. That's awesome. That's a very powerful mindset. 
it kind of reminds me of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Well, we same that we share the same faith, so I'm a Covey, I'm a Covey <laughs> adherent also. <laughs> Absolutely. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, I don't want to say you know lawn cutting, so let me let me <laughs> let me say the one that mattered the most to me, and that was. After I left my first law practice in Las Vegas and I was working for someone, I came to Oregon and I couldn't start practicing law immediately. You can't just jump from state to state without passing the bar and going through the training process. So for the first year I was here, I had to do something and I ran an escrow company, a small, exactly real estate escrow company where we closed escrows on loans. And basically I was a one man shop doing a little escrow company as a one man store and I learned from that how to run a small business. As a lawyer, you don't learn how to run a small business. You give legal advice on being a small business owner, but you don't run a small business ever, hardly ever. In fact, I've got all my partners here at a big law firm, and most of them are clueless about how to run a business from the ground up. <laughs> Things like payroll and withholding taxes and how to make sure you don't get in trouble with you know, the IRS is a small business necessity, right? So learning that as a small escrow company was the most important thing I ever learned, really, in starting my own larger law firm, because I still do my own payroll. I still do my own withholding tax. I just did it today. It's the 15th, where a lot of people have accountants or bookkeepers do it, and sometimes they get behind or they don't even know what their withholdings are. But I've been doing that for now, you know, 30 years, my own payroll and withholdings, and it just keeps me in touch with really the flesh and blood and bones of a small business activity, and it's helped in my comprehension of it is a larger law firm now. Cool. Yeah, that's very good. All right. The next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, in my estate planning practice, I have a lot of understanding of the legal structure of estates, wills, powers of attorney, all the things like that. But estate planning is, is a deeply intimate law practice with people's lives. I mean, when they come, they're not just looking to sell, be sold a trust or a will. They're coming to you to talk about their family. And a lot of their family issues are very painful to them or very distressing or very frustrating. They have addiction. They have family members who disown them. They have mixed families with children from both sides. And they have sometimes more money than they think they ought to be given their kids. And so I can sit there as a professional and talk about the legal structure. But really, a lot of times what they're asking me is, hey, Rob, what would you do? I mean, what would you do with that kid? How would you deal with this situation? And really, 35 years of law practice has helped me to sort of take my hat off of the lawyer. And like I told you about not having identity as a lawyer, take your hat off as the lawyer and be a dad, be a somebody who they can relate to. And now talk to them about how you think they ought to handle their estate plan. Well, that's all the informal training. That's just feeling your way through your, your career, not just, you know, thinking your way through it. And it's made a huge difference in the success of the way I practice as, also, as well as the amount of joy I get out of doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I like, I really think that that is, you know, the way to do business is, is to look at it from others' perspectives and try and put yourself in the shoes of, of your client. So right. hats off to you. <laughs> All right. Here is my favorite question. <laughs> okay. What was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Now, wait a minute. This question you said was, what was your Moby Dick of real estate? Uh-huh. We changed it. Well, I want to do, <laughs> do Moby Dick because that's the All right. Analogy. You can do okay. the Moby Dick. <laughs> okay. 
the reason that it touches me, this question is, I've never had a Moby Dick in real estate until a year and a half ago. And that was moving out of my 20-year home in Hillsborough and buying a house in Charbonneau. I moved to Charbonneau with my wife to downsize, right? I went to downsize in Charbonneau. Mm-hmm. Well, we ran into a house <laughs> down there that is a Moby Dick by all descriptions. It's on the river, on the Willamette. It's about 6,000 square feet. It's got a pool indoors and a tennis court, now pickleball court outside. Nobody in their right mind at age 62 with their wife and no kids living at home would buy that house ever. It's <laughs> craziness. We knew it was crazy, but it had been on the market for a year and was going down in price and it needed a lot of work. And we're like, our grandkids could come here and party all year long if we had this house. So, <laughs> so we bought it. And it is one Moby Dick. I mean, I'm an old guy trying to keep track of now chemicals in pools and keeping a tennis court clean. I mean, it's more like a building that I'm the manager of. It's not a house. But <laughs> 10 years from now, when my kids stop coming for swimming, I am so out of that place. I mean, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm out. But in the meantime, it's a Moby Dick that we're riding. <laughs> so. That is obvious. Well, so you caught Moby Dick. We caught Moby Dick, and we're now harpooned to him, and he's ripping us around. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's well, a joy to be. Like a yeah. It's a fun house. No question about it. It is a fun house. <laughs> well, congratulations on that purchase. Thank you. Well, Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. At this time, like, if our listeners want to get a hold of you or maybe ask you some more questions, what's What's a good way for them to chat with you? Or, or well, in, in any situation where I have somebody who's looking into using services that I give, I always give my time freely as an education. Just like this whole, if I'd have sat down with you as a client today instead of doing a podcast, all of this would have just been a introductory educational process because you can't make good choices without it. And mm-hmm. I always do that every time with anybody who calls or meets with me is let's talk about what your options are and what, your rec- what my recommendations would be. If you want to go forward with something great, here's what a quoted cost would be. And you can know that ahead of time. What's the budget? Are you, is, do you want to do it or not? But nobody's committed when they talk. So when people call, I have a phone number, obviously an office number, 503-684-4111. But Vile Fotheringham is the name of the law firm. And we, you know, Plenty of people hate us, so I'm sure we'll show up on the web with good and bad reviews. So you'll find us somehow on the web. But in any event, I'm easy to get a hold of. I'm down in Lake Oswego is where our office is on Lower Boonsbury Road. So it's an easy find also. Okay. Well, awesome, Rob. It was a real pleasure. I feel like I know more about trusts now and really appreciate having you on the show. You bet. It's a pleasure to be in to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob. There's so much good stuff in here. I can't wait for the episode to publish and yeah i think that we're going to get a ton of great feedback on it so thank you so much i I think i'm supposed to end now with a disclaimer nothing i said was legal (laughs) advice that you can take or (laughs) but i don't know the disclaimer well enough to memorize it so you you get the picture (laughs) yeah we we got it okay good thanks (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of the real estate professionals investing podcast on win your community for investing knowledge for growth please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.